And I should also add for the people who really love the uh, after the intro music comes to hear us talk about it at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gotta go rush back to go catch these three o'clock games, and yeah. I don't think I'm have time to make an intro song. So I'm going to defer to the Tijuana Brass to take over this one. Oh, yeah. Let's just say hi to the Tijuana Brass for a week. And if you want to throw a reggaeton horn on it, that's fine, but you don't have to. Turb Alfred, the Tijuana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest. On this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Friday appearance. This is his weekly Friday appearance. He's a lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. His name is Kylie McDaniel. In this edition of Fangraphs Audio, Kylie McDaniel uh, is reporting live from Roger Dean Stadium in Jupiter, Florida, where a showcase of the top high school prospects in the United States, that is, high school baseball prospects in the United States, is currently underway. This event uh, following... Quite closely on another one, which McDaniel attended earlier in the week, showcase featuring the top Dominican players just south of Fort Lauderdale. The details of those two showcases and the implications they have for prospect analysis serve as the subject matter uh, for the conversation with McDaniel, which follows. A pleasant conversation, I think. It is uh, it is Fangraphs Audio. It features lead prospect analyst Kylan McDaniel, live from Roger Dean Stadium in Jupiter, Florida. And it begins right now. I ended up uh, realizing that instead of standing behind the windscreen, that my car was right behind that windscreen. So I could just go sit in my car. It'd be a lot easier to hear me. Oh, you're sitting in your car. Yeah. And now I can, uh, you know, cool off a bit and then uh, also charge my phone. So yeah. it's a win, win, win. Wow. So many wins are occurring simultaneously. It's true. It's, it's what people have said about my life in general. Uh... I didn't say you were those people. No, no, you didn't say I was those people. I'm wondering if those people, if they're maybe uh, disabled in some way. Or figments of my imagination. Yeah, perhaps that. Or your mom. Um, Always goes back to the mom jokes with you, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Have you ever done that with like a, like a, in your poetry days? Uh, ended it with sort of a punchline, your mom joke, for something that was supposed to be high-minded? Uh, I don't know if I would ever do anything so stark as that, but yes, attempting to marry the high and lowbrow uh, is was of decided interest to me, and and remains so, Kylie. That's why I'm here. Yeah, that's, there you go. Yeah, yeah. Which brow are you? I'd rather not comment on yeah. that. The um, I want to say that the thing we're doing right now um it makes me a little bit nervous because it it will have something of an improvisational nature to it, Kylie. Because what we've done. You and I are talking, and you just happen to be between games. To the best of my knowledge, you have not released any prospect list this week, so we were going to be focusing mostly on what what you're up to at the moment. Yes, which yeah, which ended up uh, becoming what I wrote this week, which was not very much. <laughs> right, but but it's uh, yeah. right, but at the same time, it's uh, now now the thing you're doing. So we we just explain where you are and why you're there. Yes, well, to give a little background, so I live in Tampa, which is in the middle of the west part of Florida, and there is an event uh, 
known globally as Jupiter, but I guess the proper term is the World Wood Bet Association World Championship, uh, which is hosted by Perfect Game, which is sort of the foremost of these sort of showcase and tournament uh, running organizations for, for high school players. It's like the travel teams. Um, so this event started on Thursday and goes through the first part of Monday. And it's, uh, it's, it's sort of like the, like, uh, scouts are aware of players and then the summer comes, you get to see them in a bunch of showcases and in some games. And then this in October is the first time you get to see these guys all together in a couple of months and it's only games, no workouts or showcase stuff. So it's a good time to get an updated look to sort of stand for the fall, getting you ready for the winter. There's always some new guys that got to take a step forward because they're, you know, 17 and 18 years old, so things happen. Uh, but it's also scouts kind of like it more because you get to, you know, you get to see a first round pick to, in a four or five day period take 16 at bats against guys that are generally throwing around 90 or, or generally Division One type pitchers. So, you know, with wood bats and the whole deal. So it's a high profile event. Uh, and the uh, go continue, please. Sorry. So, so the thing I was doing before this, the Dominican Prospect League, which is a league organized to do much the same thing provide game at bats and game looks on players that are July 2nd eligible, Dominican players, 15 and 16 years old, uh, they saw that there'd be, you know, two, 300 scouts. Some teams have 20 scouts at this Jupiter event because there are, as uh, Carson has noted, at this uh, Jupiter complex, which is the Marlins and Cardinals uh, spring training complex, there are, I believe, 12 fields on a stadium. I think it's 13 fields, and it's, right now all of them are being played at, at the same time. Uh, but we have a little bit of a downtime where the starting pitchers are out, there's not a huge hitter I need to see, and we, you know, we need to podcast. Anyway, so the DPL saw there's going to be 300 scouts coming in town. Let's do something for the sort of American decision-making scouts in general terms to see these Dominican kids when they're all going to be in Southport anyway. So the four days before that, about an hour south of Fort Lauderdale, they brought about 50 of their best players uh, to do a showcase, and they played against themselves, and then last day they played against the Canadian team the day before Jupiter started, so the Canadian team got sort of like a tune-up. So the last, uh, what, six or seven days I've been in South Florida watching four days of DPL. I'm now in day two of Jupiter. i got a couple more days of that. And then the day that ends, I drive back to Tampa, hop on a plane, go to Phoenix for the fall league for eight or nine days, which is where Carson will be. So that's, that's the, that's the uh, in-depth view of what I'm doing right now. Okay, that's exciting. That's, yeah. now that's a lot of stuff. I think, no. it's 17, I think it's 17 days of games every day. Let me ask you just as a general question, and for your for your purposes in particular, as someone who writes about analysts, are you using this, is this something, do you think, is itself going to turn into a series of articles, or is this more valuable to you uh, for the purposes of establishing a foundation of knowledge about these prospects who are not uh, are not necessarily draft-eligible, or maybe some of them will be draft-eligible this year, um, but are not necessarily are not playing affiliated baseball, but, but likely will be uh, sooner if not later. Yeah, the use of this trip is multifaceted. So the July 2 thing was I typically see these guys once in January and then and basically scrambling because you're seeing like 100 players for the first time. You're busy trying to like get video with one hand, watch them with your eyes, and then write with the other hand. And by the time you feel like 10 swings in, they're back on the bench and you're just scrambling to try to write down everything that you saw. And so it's, you know, chicken with your head cut off kind of thing. And so I was basically decided to do this thing before Jupiter, which gave me the opportunity to get context and see three days' worth of games from all of these players, which is maybe half of the players that people will care about in July 2 are at this thing. Uh, 
so I now have context on half the players I'm going to see in January so that I can actually focus on what they're doing and only be half completely distracted during the week in the Dominican in January when they have all of these showcases back to back to back. The week before pitchers and catchers report, again, trying to make it convenient for sort of the, uh, the, the, the white scout that just sort of comes down once or twice a year to sort of be like, yep, that guy looks good. Let's give him the million that all you guys wanted to give him. They try to make that look, uh, good. So Jupiter, uh, this, since, since, uh, I guess we'll say the revenue center for Fangraphs is more the player pages and the rankings and the minor league stuff. I'll be shifting to do mostly that in the spring. So this is my last look at most of the high school draft prospects for the upcoming draft. So it's a good time for me to get, you know, like I saw this guy at one showcase. I get to see five at that. It's a sort of see him do sort of a formal game evaluation and sort of fill in polls. Uh, all of these events are useful for seeing people. And I've always said that I get my best sort of, uh, information from other scouts from games, which I can address. Remind me to talk about that in a minute. Uh, but it's good. It's good. We also have another uh, another guy that's sort of helping us out here, uh, getting some video and seeing some games, because obviously there's 13 going at once. Maybe eight of them don't matter. There's five that are of some interest. It's good to have a couple guys kind of bouncing around. So I'm friends with the perfect game staff, and they usually sort of cover the games I can't get to and sort of, you know, we'll shoot some text around and let each other know where to get. But, yeah, it's generally a last look at the high school guy, get some video, refine the look, and then for now with the Fangraphs thing, doing mostly minor league stuff, I won't necessarily get that second look. So for some of these guys, it might be my first, you know, sort of good look at them. So it's sort of the the punctuation on the end of summer showcase season where I've seen some of these guys six times, and I just sort of skip them to go find a guy I haven't seen before. Uh, wait, wait, what do you want me to remind you, that it's best to see them in games? Was that it? Uh, to just count the game. So uh, they're... Uh, traditionally, uh, I know people are, you know, sort of aware of Baseball America as uh, primarily it's sort of a, let's call a scout, see what he thinks and write it. We don't have scouting opinions. We're not scouts. We're going to, you know, tell people what scouts tell us and report the scouting consensus, which is sort of the way most people are introduced to how, you know, sort of prospect writing is done. And then I think he's always kind of the first guy to get out there and have some experience scouting for a club and mold his own opinion into it in a significant way. Uh, and then I came sometime after that and was doing a similar thing with a similar background. Um, so the uh, I, I think some people on the Internet still think, even if they see me tweet about being at a game, that it's sort of like sitting in the press box schmoozing and whatever, uh, and not necessarily going and doing scouting because scouts are the ones with the opinions and, you know, how, how dare you think you're smarter than them and that sort of thing. Uh, but, uh, and then... The further extension of that is when you get information, it's calling a scout or texting a scout or emailing a scout, asking him, hey, I'm writing about this player. What's he like? And then he tells me, and then I write it, which is not at all how I should. Uh, and part of the reason I don't do it that way, there's many reasons, but one of them is my best source of information that's not stuff that I saw, like, you know, sort of scout supplementing what I know, is being at a game often, uh, you know, down the baseline where there's only one or two of us, because scouts are always a little aware of, oh, I'm being seen talking to Kylie. They're going to think I'm the guy giving an info. So when it's just one or two of us, there's not a lot of people around. They're more comfortable with that. Um, but when they see you're at a game, they know you're going to games often. They know you're putting in the work. You're, you're not just basically asking them to give them all of their work, that you're, you're doing it on your own and you're just asking for a little info to sort of supplement what they're doing. They are way, scouts are way more often, uh, way more likely to help you. And as a further extension of that, 
when you're at a game doing the work, the same work they're doing, when I, my job isn't to go to the game, my job is to write about it, and I can go if I want to. Their job is to be at the game. And so I'm going out of my way to do the extra effort, which they appreciate. And multiple guys have told me, like, you know what, I normally wouldn't, you know, if some guy just called me and asked me this, I wouldn't tell him, but because you're at the game here with me, I feel like you're doing the best you can. You know, you're, uh, you're trying, you're trying to go above and beyond to do the best job you can. I'll tell you some stuff that I wouldn't normally tell just some, you know, random, you know, beat writer that wants to know about the local high school prospect. I'll tell you because you're, you know, you're, you're, you're putting in the work that we're putting in. You can sort of sympathize with my situation. And so then that guy that feels that way about me is more likely when I, you know, run up against something and don't necessarily have the time to go see this guy or he's too far away, they're more likely to the random time that I need to, hey, I've never seen this guy before, I heard he's a guy, what's going on, to give me that full report, you know, that I think people think is the only way I get info, when in fact it's it's a big mix of, you know, seeing them in other ways. You mentioned that when you're watching uh, the Dominican players engineering the Dominican, uh, you you have to do to sort of um, document and and I guess uh, digest a lot of your a lot of what you're seeing in a very short amount of time. Um, this I get this could be this is a naive question, perhaps uh, dull and logistical or dull for logistical reasons for some people. For me, it's interesting, and I'm curious as to what your process is for uh, transferring or reviewing and, and maybe transferring to a more organized form those notes that you're recording in uh, hastily in the moment. Yeah, it's interesting, especially with the July 2 guys, because, like, if, when I'm... So I'll, with the right-hand hitters, they BP, and there's a bunch of righties coming up. I'll go set up down the first baseline to get their open side BP. So usually what I'll do is I'll set up the camera on my knee so it's steady, and then I'll write with my, with my right hand on my right knee. It's a, it's very Rube Goldbergian. I, it, it, just a stiff wind would knock everything over and ruin my day. Um... But I would so typically with that video, you can go back and review the swing all you want. So I usually don't pay super close attention to like the swing mechanics. I'll obviously notice things and write down a good bat speed or loose swing or projectable body. All stuff I could get from the video later. The thing you can't get is where the ball is landing. So I go out of my way to make sure I can grade their raw power and note like you know putting a lot of effort into it. The ball landed you know here, which means this kind of power, and there's not much more in there. He's kind of doing a max effort swing. That's the thing you have to get down because you can't see where the ball lands in the video of, you know, a tight shot of him taking BP. So that's what you have to do. And then, but the funny thing is, especially for July 2 guys, you're projecting so much that sort of quick hands and a loose swing and... Hey. You call me eating trail mix. Oh, oh, your favorite. It's the best. Someone the other day said I forgot. Well, I neglected to ask you if you ate the trail mix after Buck Showalter put his hand. Oh, yeah, and you never wash it again. <laughs> I should note, I, wa- I wash my trail mix with dish soap. That may be why I have the current health problems that I have. Oh, yeah, you shouldn't do that. That doesn't sound good at all. It's got to be clean. All right, sorry. I got that on my system now. So I got... I got in terms of the middleman answer. So I, what I was saying was the uh, the thing you have to get from BP is where, basically where the ball's landing. But often with these 16-year-olds, you're looking for the broad parameters of, you know, good swing, loose movements, good bat path, things like that. The stuff you get if you're just sitting there with a notepad, not doing anything else, watching him and by two or three rounds, 
you sort of make those conclusions. When I'm busy doing all that other stuff, you have to go back to the video later to note that. Uh, so I don't remember why I was noting <laughs> that process, but that's sort of the challenge is that you're both documenting, which has to be done then uh, via the video. Uh, you're I, sometimes I'll even log, so when I go back into the video, I know I know that track one is this guy, track two is that guy, so I don't have to open every single track just to be able to label it for later. Yeah. And then also you have to label where the ball is going, what kind of effort he has, that kind of thing, to think what's in the frame with what's not in the frame. And then sometimes the actual scouting gets left until later when you go back and look at the video, because you sometimes what, what I did at this last Dominican showcase is after they do one day of workouts with like run the 60, take infield, throw from the outfield, BPL, that kind of thing. Some guys will have very good tool grades as far as, uh, you know, just like power and speed and stuff, but then you see them in a couple of the games and it's like, oh, he's full out of the box, first step is bad defensively, the speed is to play on the bases because he's kind of an idiot, the swing is stiff and uphill, but he has power, which at 16, that isn't something you want, whereas at like 23, if he's in double A and performing, you might be more willing to, you know, to value that. So often it takes me that third day to really figure out exactly where someone is if I'm also doing sort of the reporting aspects of, you know, taking the video and all that and making sure to go talk to scouts and all that sort of thing. And so luckily this thing was four days, so by the end of it I had a very good feel for everybody and had sort of reviewed all this information in full. But in the Dominican in January, it's going to be a two-day showcase from one event, two days with a different event with a different set of players, and then a two-day event with a third group of players, and you don't really have that opportunity. So by the end I'm – busy running the scouts and saying, I have this list of 20 guys. I know I'm forgetting somebody because I haven't gone back to the video. Who's the guy I'm missing that I need to pay attention to? And usually they'll tell me, like, these are the two guys you didn't mention. You need to, you know, shoot up the list. Right. And, and the original question, which, you, which you've answered mostly, is uh, this one of organization. Uh, uh, you know, um, attempting to synthesize all of these, what, what sounds like can, can sometimes be scattered notes uh, into something that even before you start writing actually makes sense to you the person who's made those, uh, you know, made those notes earlier. Yeah, it depends what the, like the detail event, they'll give you like a roster with like area for notes. So the easiest way to basically have quick notes next to a guy's name, they've given you a sheet of paper with like a grid. Often, like the minor leagues, they just give you a roster. Mm-hmm. And so then I pull out my moleskin. That's, uh, it seems to be the notebook of choice with scouts right now, which oh, I really? think you would find, you, yeah, you find commendable. Um, I've got, I think, nine completely filled moleskins sitting on my computer uh, at home. I usually carry the most recent one with me in case something comes up. Uh, but, yeah, in that case, I'll usually, you know, sort of star on the roster the seven or eight guys I want to care about on the minor league game, write their names down, write down the batting order, that sort of thing, and sort of selectively take notes on who matters, whereas at these big showcase events, uh, they'll often give you a big roster with lots of white space so you can sort of fill it out as you go. And then once, it's, once the showcase version is over of BP and Enfield, you can sort of star the guys you care about and then maybe transfer it into a notebook later to make it a little, you know, a little easier because usually you're, after workout day, your sheet of paper is filled with information. Yep. So when, yeah, when you go back through my info from past events of July 2 and minor league and draft and stuff, you'll see a stack of rosters, a stack of random pieces of paper, and then a stack of notebooks. And, and then I used to do like a big card stock form that I would make. Like there's a bunch of different ways you can do it, but yeah, there's no, there's no right way, but I, I prefer to try to put as much in the mold as I can. You know, this, this uh, uh, showcase you saw last week, that was the Dominican Prospect League or something along those lines? Yes. Uh, and how are the um, – I mean, how, are, how is it that these players are chosen to make the trip up to Florida as opposed to um, any other group of, uh, of baseball players in the Dominican? 
the DPL was formed a couple years ago. The basic idea was big league teams aren't seeing these players in games enough. They're basically signing them off for workouts. Uh, and then if you do see them in games, it's when they come to your academy and only one team gets to see it. So if a guy goes to an academy, has a great two weeks when he was staying at that academy, the other 29 teams didn't know about it. So they were basically looking for more trans- – teams were looking for more transparency to have these at-bats happening in front of everybody. So if the guy does really well, he could get paid by everybody, not just the one team that saw him that great two-week period. Right, yeah, and it's a, so, that, that seems to be – if I can interrupt, that seems to be an advantage – uh, obviously, frequently these Dominican prospects come out on the short end of um, what you might consider the uh, the bargain between them and the, the teams that are likely to to um, to select them to pay them. But if a if a player is able to, in, in this particular case, you say market his skills to 30 teams simultaneously as opposed to just one at a time, then that seems like it would be an advantage for him. Yes, exactly. So from what I know of the business model, it's basically you opt into the Dominican Prospect League if we sort of, if you're, you know, good enough and we invite you and all that sort of thing. Uh, in exchange, we get, I think it's one or two percent of your signing bonus and you can play in unlimited amounts of events, which in some cases is every single week for the entire year that you're being scouted. Uh, so I, absolutely worth it for the exposure. And then obviously the league has a lot of sort of overhead, like paying for these trips to get the kids to America, where the one to two percent is, you know, I'm sure they're making a little bit of a profit because they have some guys that get $3 million that are giving them 1% or 2% or whatever it is. Uh, but there's, you know, more and more sort of huge money guys have to uh, make the equation in their head. Am I still going to get my $3 million if I don't go there? Should I go there? There's a competing league called the International Prospect League, the IPL, which is a little less organized. Uh, but one of the things that distinguishes the DPL is every player is treated the same. So, for instance, every game has 12 hitters because there is a middle infielder, a corner infielder, and I believe an outfielder on the bench, and then every half inning they rotate. So the shortstop moves to second, second base to the bench, bench to shortstop. So everybody gets the exact same amount of playing time, whereas from my understanding, the IPL is a little more sort of star-oriented, where if there's a big-time player, he's going to play at shortstop or outfield in every game. Oh, and maybe okay. they take a higher or lower cut, I don't know. But it's it's seen as differently, whereas the DPL is sort of the, uh, the most... Uh, uh, I don't know, I guess to organize, it's on time, things in the Dominican, obviously, well, uh, not obviously, but things in the Dominican are notorious for running late and, mm-hmm. you know, starting an hour late and things like that. They always start on time and sometimes start early, and it's very set out. This is what we do. This is how we do it. We run good events, and so they're the – I, I think they would be the, the preferred league, uh, mm-hmm. although I'm told the IPL has some good talent that I might be checking out another month or so. I will say, um, having spent uh, – this is a um, a dummies – and this is a dummy's reading of cultural relativism. Uh, having spent some time in other countries, I will say that uh, uh, Americans do seem more concerned about punctuality than many other nations. Yeah, it wasn't meant as a cultural judgment. It's like the it's DPL fe- volunteers. Yeah. Uh, most events and showcases run 20 minutes late for when they start, and scouts and Dominican people and non-Dominican people that are down there a lot will all volunteer that. Uh, it's just, yeah, I think it's a little, just a little more of sort of an island atmosphere where it's, yeah, we'll start when we start. Yeah, well, uh, no, but I could tell you that even in uh, France, uh, um, the, this was also the case. Uh, things, uh, yeah. people were less concerned about punctuality. And I think it really is just a, the only, the only requirement is if everybody feels the same way about it, then nobody notices a difference. It's only if it, if one person believes that things should be starting on time and another person doesn't. That's when you have, uh, conflict. 
Yeah, and I guess the, the part where that sort of bugs the, the American coming down only once or twice a year is, okay, then that means I show up 15 minutes late to everything, and then he ends up showing up 15 minutes late to the thing that starts on time, and now he's like, so now I have to show up on time to everything and sometimes wait an hour? Like, is that how this works now? Like, it sounds like a frustrating way to try to be efficient, which I think is what gets on people's nerves. But, like, yeah, this event, I they would say we're going to, you know, taking a break, one hour, be back at 12.30, and then I go get lunch, walk back in, like, 12.20, and they're, like, sort of getting on the field ready to go, like, eight minutes early. I'm like, all right, these guys are kidding around. They're trying to get out of here. Yeah, well, that's good. Uh, be good for you. It, um, get to, I don't know. Well, I, found an, I, found, I found an authentic Mexican taco place about a mile from the stadium in Fort Lauderdale, so I was I was in business. Right. And, of course, at, uh, at Roger Dean, where you are currently, um, I don't know if you know this. There, now, there's a bar that's very close to the outside of Roger Dean, but if you go around that and take a left, there's actually a, like a craft beer bar there. I did not know that. I was actually invited out for beers after the games last night, but they ended at like 10.30, and this morning game started at 8, and I was a little tired, so yeah. I, I passed. That, that may become an option uh, after tonight's games. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you go out, you'll see one bar that's sort of more of just like a – you know, standard standard fare so far as bars goes. But then, yeah, you go past it, take a left, go go down the street a little bit, and there is a craft beer bar there. You, you know, you get I mean, you get anything you want, but it's uh, it's nice to have some options. Absolutely, I, I'd like I would some a beer snob, but I like to say I can uh, appreciate. Although I still think my favorite beer is Guinness, which is available in most places. It's available in most places. Yeah, it's a well, it's a tasty yeah. tasty beverage. Yeah, I uh, I, I enjoy variety, but I, I think my opinion. Um, generally, is that um, some beer, regardless of uh, what what brand, uh, is better than no beer? That seems to be the. Is that how the equation goes in the Sicily household? It is, yeah, it is. Um, let's let's uh, let me ask you a question um, about wood bats. You mentioned that what you're no what you're at right now is a, is a showcase of uh, talented um, amateurs, ta- amateur high school students, right? Correct. It's yeah. uh, some as young as freshmen and sophomores, but generally it's sophomores and some juniors. Okay. And uh, they're playing with wood bats. Oh, sorry, sorry, seniors and some juniors. Sorry. Seniors. They're playing with wood bats. Yes. Um, which they typically don't do in school, I think. Now, I know that uh, college uh, level, the collegiate level, they've, they have uh, made the change in the last couple of years to the BB core bats. Yes, and there are a couple junior colleges. I believe the one Bryce Harper went to and some of the ones out west, like Arizona and Nevada, actually use wood bats. But, yeah, the BB core is pretty close to a wood bat as far as impact, although there's, it's probably still a little better, but I think the old aluminum bats were maybe twice as good as far as results, and uh-huh. these are, like, maybe 10% better. Like, it's much closer. And uh – so if you go to just a high school game, say there's a high school game in the Tampa area, I know that you do that sometimes to go uh, watch a couple of prospects um, from Florida. Do you, uh, when, when you're seeing the bats there, are those going to be the old style aluminum? Are they BB core or something in between? Uh, they all, all the prospects always take BP with wood. Sometimes they'll take it with aluminum toward the end just to get you know back used to it. But yeah, they they know scouts want to see them with wood. And the games, uh, I believe. But most of the high schools are require the BB core now. I actually haven't asked that. That's a good question. But yeah, because the the adjustment is usually, uh, you know, you're looking for sort of BP power, and they always take BP with a wood bat. So I never bothered asking what bats they use. I would, I, I mean, you would think that the kids that are going to be going Division One will get used to those bats. But I would think if the if the district doesn't require it, then why would you take away the juiced bat? I I think bats in general are getting less impact. But yeah, that. 
Since I don't know that, I would imagine it's not a huge question for the reasons I described about the would that DP. But yeah, yeah. I'm not positive. No, that's no, that's perhaps even the most satisfactory possible answer. Was uh, do you remember Jamie D'Antona? I do. I read that book about him. Yeah, right. The, uh, was, last best league. Was Jamie was Jamie D'Antona? Is he is he an example of a player who uh, whose success was largely based off of the aluminum bat? Yeah, I think there's a more granular way to describe it, but in short, yeah. it's a, I, I actually don't think I ever scouted him. I may have seen him in double-A late in his career when he was, like, 26. Um, but, yeah, in general, it sounds like he was the slightly stiff, physically power guy, a little bit of an uppercut to a swing, that kind of guy when you're throwing 88 and you have a metal bat, the old juiced ones, can hit it a mile. Scouts are like, oh, we're not sure. He's not a first-round pick, but, you know, maybe second or third. I don't remember where he went, somewhere around there. And then uh, basically saying, if this works, then it's going to really work. And if it doesn't, it's going to be embarrassing. And I don't remember how high he got, but I, I remember, I believe, either seeing him or knowing he was in double-A at, like, an age, like, 25 or 26 or 27, where it was, you know, right. pretty late. So was it sounds, sounds like it generally did. Yeah, it sounds like it generally didn't work out. Although he may have gotten a cup of coffee in the big league. Yeah, in fact, I, I don't know if he, uh, he he also seems like a candidate, doesn't he, for um, uh, for Japanese baseball? That given that uh, that, yeah. that description. And I know there was a guy like that that the D-backs took that I did in their rankings uh, named Daniel Polka, who I believe was the third or fourth round pick. He's like a left field first base guy with like above average plus power, but the question was, is he going to hit enough? And he hasn't really hit yet. And their guys and the scouts outside the York weren't like super enthusiastic, but he actually had decent numbers in low A at like age 22, something like that. And he seems like exactly that kind of guy that will probably get to AAA, may or may not get a big league cup of coffee, but sounds like he's probably not going to be anything of note as a big leaguer. Right. Uh, and but he's the guy that he's the guy that he's the guy that sort of uh, stat guys will bring it up in draft and uh, chats and be like, oh, he went in the third round. He's got huge tools and he had big numbers in low A. And I was like, eh, there's a little more to it than that. He um, uh, some illicit googling reveals that Jamie D'Antona did play in Japan. Um, so there you go. Well, there you go. Yeah, two years with Yakult. Yakult. I'm not saying that right. I'm sure. Uh, let's see. What else to ask Kyle McDaniel? Oh yeah, you 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 were telling me you were on a tower. You were in a tower somewhere. Oh, I know a guy. <laughs> what is this? Uh, so what's the actual – now, you, you see in some cases you may be running around to different fields or in other cases you recognize you have to watch one game as opposed to another. I, I do know what you're talking about with regard to the towers. So you have these – and this is pretty common at um, these uh, sort of spring training or um, you know organizational facilities. You'll have – these backfields where the home plate areas all sort of join up and then in the middle there's a tower so you can see from them. But is it normal to go up into the tower as opposed to just walking uh, you know, walking up to the backstop? But by the way, they call that the clover setup. And uh, the towers are also common in football for football coaches to watch all the players at once. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, yeah so the towers are actually for PC staff only, perfect game. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could say I am an FOPG, friend of perfect game. Okay. So yeah, – yeah, I'm, I'm going to do that, so you better get used to it. Yeah, okay. Um, so since we're sort of fellow media people, I think it's us, Baseball Perspectives, who's affiliated with Perfect Game, and Baseball America are kind of the outlets here, and so we're all kind of accepted into the towers. It's, I guess it's sort of like a makeshift press box kind of deal. Uh, so at that at that point, I was at Four Fields with uh, 
with Frankie Polari, Perfect Game, who pe- people who followed my podcast at Scout have heard a lot. He was the very frequent guest. Um, we were watching two pitchers. Uh, one was an underclassman. Uh, it was like a 6'4 junior in high school that was like 90-91. Very impressive. I think Perfect Game has him like 16th in the country in the class. It was very good. Watched two innings. And then on the adjacent field was a sort of six-foot uh, guy for this year's class that has hit 95 before, but was like 90-91, fringy slider, high effort, didn't really know what was going on. Like, wasn't very good. Uh, named Shane Tucker. Uh, the underclass guy was Charles King. He's from, I think, the Dallas area, something like that. Anyway, so I watched two innings of both of them. I had seen enough. There weren't any really hitters I really needed to bear down on in that area, and there wasn't a game I had to get to. And so I went up in the tower, and they had Wi-Fi. So uh, Dave... Cameron had asked me if I was ready to chat today, and I said, I don't think so. And then these two guys didn't meet expectations. Suddenly I had about an hour and a half to kill. So I chatted. Oh, or it would be choked. Choked? What's the past sense of chat? You chat, chatted. Chate? Yeah. You, um, so, so you're looking at these two guys. You say, no, you said that this was a, uh, the, first, the first guy there who was an underclassman. Um, 99, yeah. Was this Charles King or the other one there? Yeah, Charles King was uh, a 2016, his biggest nomenclature. Okay, yeah, he's a 2016. And what you said, 9091, that's good. I mean, how do you, is there like if, you know, if we could look at, there's like a sliding scale, if a pitcher's throwing 9091 at age, you know, 16, then we can expect him yeah, to be Yeah, 16 or 17. Then we can expect him to be throwing 94 by age 19. I mean, is is there any sort of even loose algorithm like that? I'm glad you brought this up. This is, a, this is how people can tell we don't plan this podcast. <laughs> okay. Because um, other questions I don't say, I'm glad you brought this up, which, you know, if it was planned, I would say that every time, right? Yeah. Um, so two things. Uh, one, one of the teams I worked for, we did a study where we took the future projected fastball for high school kids in the draft that our scouts put on them and then took their present fastball at their highest level in the minor leagues. So we're talking – 18 years old, our guys project the future fastball grade, which is basically projecting their velocity, to, say, 25 years old. And then we go find them when they're in double-A AA or triple-A if they ever got that far, or the highest level they got to, when they're presumably 24 or 25, unless their arm blew out, and see what their actual velocity was then. Guess what the correlation was between those two numbers? What? Zero. Oh. There was no correlation at all. And the reason is, you can look at a guy that's, you know, has this sort of build and should put on 20 pounds and throws 90 to 91 he's this age, and that means you should be, you know, two ticks higher at 25 or whatever. Like, there is sort of a rubric for that. Uh-huh. Uh, but there are so many guys that instead of going from 90 to 93, instead go to 99 or 100, and you're like, well, he had a clean arm and he was projectable. I guess that's possible. Or their arm blows out and they never get drafted or they flame out or suddenly – they get hurt, but then they come back and they throw 88. Like, there's so many guys that do something that was sort of unexpected. But you know it's possible, but you never, like, project it to happen because you don't know who it's going to happen to, that it makes the ones you nail, like, so rare that it basically doesn't show up at all. Like, I think the correlation was, like, .1 something. It was ridiculous. My God. And that, and now that you're saying is that the, the scouts were measuring the current fastball or what they considered to be the projectionable fastball? The projection. So the idea is, if you're uh, if you're drafting a guy in you know 40th overall in the sandwich round, and he throws 90 to 91 right now, but you're drafting because you think he's going to throw 95, this is saying you're stupid to spend that kind of pick and that kind of money on a guy where all of his value is based on what you think he's going to do, because your scouts and everyone's scouts are terrible at projecting that. And that I, you, you, 
<laughs> it's, it's basically saying you'd be better off taking the guy that's six foot that has no projection, but throws you know ninety two to ninety five, but you're worried he can't get that much better. It's basically saying take that guy, all things being equal. Right. So, so I was wondering, is there any correlation between a guy's present a prospect's present flat fastball velocity and then his then his fastball velocity, whatever, three, four, or five years later? I don't know. I guess there probably would be. Or probably uh, probably a little more, but maybe not that much, because it's still, the velo basically goes way up or way down, and the ones we gravitate to right. is the guy that, you know, was 88 as a junior in high school, was 90 as a senior, wanted too much money, went to college, his velo went up one tick each year, then he went 10th overall out of college. Like, we all know that story. There's, like, a couple of those in every draft in the first round, but you're just ignoring the dozens and dozens who didn't do anything close to that. Yeah. I mean, I sat probably low 70s, as a senior in high school, are you suggesting yeah, com- comfortably in the high sixties? <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, I was there. The uh, are you saying that maybe I should have I should have stuck with it? That maybe I would have had a velocity spike uh, to the nineties? If we're yeah, if, or if we're saying there's no correlation. And one of the fun parts is all the different uh, all the different terminology for we get, we got we got velo bump, velo spike. Uh, you get the you know this guy is. A, Especially good performer today. He shoved. Oh, uh, oh wait, he that's, shoved. What is that? Yeah. If he, if he, if he, I think it comes from like he told the other team to shove it, so it just gets shortened to this guy shoved today. Oh wow. So yeah. like like for instance, last night there were four games going at the same time in the night games, which is like four. You try to get four premier teams, and it was so, so many good pitchers going at once. There were maybe three first round picks all throwing at the same time on different fields. Uh, that me and the PG guys were all running around telling each other, oh, this happened to that guy, oh, you missed that guy. And one of the, <laughs> one of the scouts walked over and was like, oh, did you guys see that guy in this field? He totally shoved. And we're like, oh, is he done? Like, yeah, his inning's over. We're like, oh, we missed him. Oh, he shoved uh, and you missed the shove. Yeah, you didn't even see the shove. <laughs> now, wait a second. When you're watching these guys, these guys who, who know that so many scouts are there, um, do, do they ever take uh, the opportunity to hump up on their fastball? Oh boy, do they! They they, uh, says, they hump up a little bit. There, see, we're putting it in a positive context. These sort of showcase tournament season, uh, that it is a positive thing where the kids that want to be seen have a chance to be seen, and the scouts who want to see a lot of performance have a chance to do it. And there have been studies that have shown teams are getting better at giving the right big money to the right players, like basically getting more accurate at projecting the draft, particularly high school players, because of this, mm-hmm. like. Justin Upton was known as a high school freshman. He was heavily scouted for four years. Like, there's teams that probably had 300 bats of him, you know, where they would bat against good pitching at these sorts of events. Um, so that's why that's happening. The flip side of this is it is not cheap to go to these events. It's not cheap to put them on. And so it's, it generally caters to the affluent, oh. often white player who goes to a lot of these events. Often kids will get Tommy John twice before they're out of high school because they feel like they have to go to these events to get a college scholarship. Like there's a there's a flip side to all the positives, which is in 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 the process of striving to get to where they need to be. Some kids that maybe aren't quite that good but have rich parents and really want to get there can oh. sort of you know abuse the system. And then at the same time, the inner city, often black kid that plays football because you get a full scholarship in college if you play football and it's easier to go walk out onto a field in high school because they provide the equipment. Baseball is a little harder because you don't get a full scholarship. You can't get a big bonus unless scouts have seen you enough, which you usually have to come to these events where you have to pay 
you know, hundreds of dollars and sometimes uh, a little more than that, you know, there, there are kids that are getting well into the thousands to go participate in showcase season. And it's not easy to go play sort of pick up baseball in, uh, in low income areas like it is to play pick up basketball or to just go play football for various reasons. And so that's part of the reason why you'll see some guys, uh, on the internet in the South talk about why the, you know, sort of the black player is getting harder to find because the culture we're creating, uh, isn't conducive to, uh, is, I guess it sort of, uh, is an advantage for the typical white player over the typical black player. Uh, and, and the NCAA not having full scholarships also further incentivizes them to focus on other sports. What um, are, are efforts made at all for kids who come from um, poorer socioeconomic uh, areas? To uh, is there like a financial aid system in place? Because I assume that the teams would also have an interest. The teams have an interest in creating a meritocracy, right? Where yeah, the, there you know, is. There is a system that MLB set up called RBI, Reviving Baseball in the Inner Cities, uh, which sort of set up complexes in, I believe, Inner City, Houston, and then Compton in L.A., a couple other places. And every year before the season starts in February, there's a big showcase at the Compton one, which is all the best players in California. Uh, so there are efforts being made, but the player that's not being served isn't the player that wants to go show up at these academies. It's the player that is a Division One football recruit, maybe doesn't have the grades to get into school and would have to then go to a junior college. If he sort of knew baseball was an option and had the ability to go practice or had the interest because it's, you know, portrayed in such a way on TV or all these different things, it's like sort of that great athlete fringe interest or fringe player that needs some repetition. Doesn't It isn't easy for that guy to get it. That's the guy that's getting left out, and that's why around draft time when there's a surprise pick or a guy that didn't go to showcases that isn't well-known or, you know, Baseball America or me throw our hands up going, we don't know much about this guy. We just heard his name before the draft. A lot of times it's a multi-sport guy that didn't go to showcase events, sometimes disadvantaged background, sometimes they just were focusing on football and sort of popped up late. And yeah. then oftentimes it'll be a team that emphasizes tools over polish. Uh, teams like Kansas City or Philadelphia or the Marlins are sort of known for that. We'll take the multi-sport guy that shows flashes, and then often we'll have huge flameouts in the system, but then we'll have guys like, uh, i trying to think of an example of a guy that worked out from that. I'm not in trouble thinking of one, but uh, Dominic Brown, I think, was sort of like that, uh, a guy that had sort of limited polish, although I'm not sure if he was or wasn't a showcase guy. But, for example, there's some teams that are inclined to do that sort of thing and may take that sort of guy. Hmm. All right. Well, It's uh, a lot of information and, and choices to make and whatnot. So many choices. I mean, yeah, it's hard enough just to get through the day. You know, I know, right? Normally speaking, you, get, yeah. you go to the you go to the cereal aisle and you just want some, you know, something brand or brand, uh, you know, brand adjacent. Yeah. And uh, guess what? You got a hundred brands to choose from. Yeah. Yeah, it's too many. It's maybe it's too many. We're uh, burdened by choice. Too much choice. Excessive choice. I think I think we've now made a new theme for the podcast of ending on a real down note. Yeah, that's fine. Do you want to say something about Nike before we get going? Uh, you know what? I'm wearing Nike shoes right now, and Nike, uh, you know, sponsors perfect games. So why don't we go with a with a positive and see if they maybe want to, you know, throw a couple pairs of shoes our way? Yeah, throw. Uh, <laughs> only if they're Nike. allowed to throw them at us, though, as I feel is the only way they would accept. I, I got I got pretty it. Uh, Nike, just do it. Yeah, just go ahead and do it. All right. You, you were thinking about it? Yeah. Do it. Do it. Uh, and I should also add, for the people who really love the 
after the intro music comes to hear us talk about it at the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, I gotta go rush back to go catch these three o'clock games, and yeah. I don't think I'm have time to make an intro song. So I'm gonna defer to the Tijuana Brass to take over this one. Oh yeah, let's just say hi to the Tijuana Brass for a week. Yeah, and if you want to throw a reggaeton horn on it, that's fine, but you don't have to. I'll find, I'm, I might try and find a reggaeton sound by just for you. Well, I sent you one around week one, so it's in your email somewhere. Yeah, I probably deleted that promptly. <laughs> I would go with a likely if I had to get Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, well, a pleasure. As always, Kylie, enjoy those afternoon games. And, I'm uh, off to go watch a, one of the best 2016 arms in the nation that I have never seen before named Trick Hello. This could be a fun one. All right. Well, stick around just for a half a second. But for the meantime, on behalf of or for myself and on behalf of the uh, listeners, thank you, Kylie McDaniel. Thank you, sir. All right. That has uh, been uh, Kylie McDaniel, the lead prospect analyst, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio.